Uh, keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we, are, we are going to really focus in on verse 15 today, and I promise you, um, I, I know that we are probably, I think, in week number 5 or 6 uh, of this Mark series, and so obviously I've not made it very far thus far. Uh, but next week, we will be looking at the rest of chapter 1. So if you're one that likes to read ahead and kind of give a, get an understanding of where we are going, uh, next week, we're going to really look at verses 16 through uh, 45, um, wherever, yes, 45 or 46, uh, the end of chapter 1. And, uh, but today, we're just going to really focus in on one very specific verse. This is really part two uh, of this particular message that we began last week uh, when we looked at verse number 14. Uh, in this text that we are looking at today, in verses 14 and 15 of Mark's gospel, uh, there are really two movements uh, that we have given our attention to that give us greater insight and clarity surrounding God's sovereign rule. And when I talk about the kingdom of God, and I'm going to explain that here in just a few minutes this morning, when I refer to the kingdom of God, I am referring to God's sovereign rule and reign. And we're going to look a little bit more at that this morning and how we should respond to Him as our King and this kingdom of God. We looked at movement number one last week. We talked a little bit about the arrest of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the man who was charged with the task of preparing the way for the greater one to come. And, and he did that. He went into the wilderness. He preached. Uh, he proclaimed. He, he shared about this greater one that was coming. And then remember, Jesus came into the wilderness. He was baptized by John the Baptist. And if you remember, if you recall, Jesus then was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and nights. But then Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and when he does, John the Baptist is arrested. Therefore, John's ministry really paved the way for Jesus to begin his public ministry in Galilee. John's ministry, even though when you look at it, at least on the surface level, John is arrested. And so from our perspective, from a human perspective, it seems as if John's ministry was ineffective, but really it was just the opposite. His arrest paved the way and allowed for Jesus' public ministry, his preaching ministry and healing ministry to begin in Galilee. John prepared the way for the greater one to come. Though in the moment, and really from an earthly point of view, we talked about this last week and this is really where we ended, John's circumstances may not have made sense in the moment. But it was very clear when we began to pull back and, and look beneath the surface of what was occurring in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, that God was really working in the spiritual realm. We ended last week, and, and many of you even responded uh, to the message, and we talked about it. I think there's, there's many of us, whether it's now in the moment or maybe times in our life where, where we've walked through situations or encountered certain circumstances in our life that don't make sense. I think if we're all honest in this room, there have been times where we've asked the question, God, why me? Or why this? Or, or can I get greater understanding of why this is happening in my life? And sometimes in the moment and from an earthly perspective, perspective and from an earthly plane, we cannot seem to grasp or understand what's taking place. 
But we really ended last week, and, and many of you responded uh, really to this message and to, the, and to this word. And, and, and the reality is, I think all of us in this room, we desire to see not just from an earthly perspective, perspective, but we want to see from a spiritual perspective. So we ended last week praying, asking God, asking the Holy Spirit to give us spiritual eyes to see what is going on in the spiritual realm. And I want you to know, um, as, as your pastor, even this week, I've been praying for each of you, praying for this congregation, that God would continue to give us spiritual eyes to see what God is doing in the spiritual realm. How many in this room want spiritual eyes, not physical or earthly eyes, to see what God is doing. And so in order for us to see past what is happening now and in the moment, and that doesn't mean that we're going to understand everything. That doesn't mean that God is going to reveal in this great and magnificent way and give us an explanation for why every single thing happened. But what it does is it allows us to see that even though our circumstances here may not quite make sense, it allows us to understand that even then God is still working and moving and orchestrating circumstances that our minds cannot fully grasp. There's so many stories in Scripture. I talked about Moses last week. Um, And and in Moses' life, I could have talked about Esther. Esther was one uh, who couldn't quite grasp or understand why she was placed in the position she was as queen of Persia, even though she was a Jew. But we see that she was placed there for a very specific purpose and reason. As she began to see um, what God was doing through spiritual lens, things began to make sense to her. So that was really the first movement that we looked at last week. Today, I want to spend just the rest of our time this morning looking at the second movement in our text that really comes from verse 15, and that is the inaugural message or the inaugural proclamation of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to our text again in verse number 15, Mark 1, verse 15. Here is, here is so Jesus, keep in mind, I want you to understand what's happening. Jesus, remember, he goes into the wilderness. He is baptized by John the Baptist. And he comes up out of the water. Remember, heavens are opened up. The Father speaks, this is my son whom I love with him. I am very well pleased. Okay, that happens in the wilderness. And then when you read on in Mark 1, it says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Really, that means he thrust him deeper into the wilderness, a place uh, where there were wild animals, a place that, that resembled chaos and confusion. The Spirit led Jesus deeper into the wilderness where he would be tempted for 40 days and nights. But then he comes out of the wilderness. John is arrested. And now Jesus is going to begin his public ministry. So this is his inaugural address. This is the very first thing that we hear from Jesus. He is the greater one that John the Baptist was preparing the way for. And now he has come out of the wilderness and listen to what he says. He goes into Galilee where he preach God's good news. And these are Jesus's words. The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, it was a pretty short inaugural address. Maybe some of you in this room would hope that I would preach short sermons like that. Just four sentences, very easy easy to grasp. Uh, but we're going to focus our attention this morning really on those four things. The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe, believe the good news. Now, I want to make just a quick distinction this morning. And if you, if you were to study or look a little bit deeper at Jesus' teaching ministry versus John the Baptist and his teaching and preaching ministry, there was a, a unique distinction between the two. 
Jesus wasn't just coming to, to proclaim or preach about timeless spiritual realities that are for the here and now. But what we see here in verse 15 is that Jesus is coming to make an announcement about a world-changing event or occurrence that is happening, and that event is that God's kingdom has now come. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene to begin his public ministry, he's not just, he's not just preaching or teaching these small little you know, nuggets of truths that we can walk away with. Now, we can pull that out of Scripture. We can see that in some places. But here in his inaugural address, Jesus is, is declaring that God's kingdom, it has come in full force. It has been ushered in, and, and this is going to be an event that will change the world. One writer said this, in Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. And so Jesus is coming. We refer to his coming in the flesh as the incarnation, God coming in human flesh. So Jesus is coming in the flesh. And here in Mark's gospel, Jesus coming and making this proclamation, what we see is that in the person of Jesus, the, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God, now makes a personal appearance in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' message, and this is what I want to focus on this morning, his message has four really powerful components, two declarations and two commands, and that I want us to really focus our attention on this morning. The first thing that I want to talk about to you today is the first declaration, and it is this, the time promised by God has come at last. The time promised by God has come at last. That is the first proclamation or declaration of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When he comes into Galilee, he begins his public ministry by declaring to those who are present the time that has been promised by God, it has come at last. Now, I wanna unpack that just a little bit this morning. What, what is the time that Jesus of Nazareth is referring to that, that has been promised by God. First of all, this time, it refers to the coming of one whose kingdom would be forever established. Um, if you are a note taker, you can jot this verse down. I'm not going to read uh, the whole passage, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 11 through 16, but I'm just going to put up a, a little snippet of that verse up on the screen. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, just verse 16. Look at what it says. And, this, and keep in mind, this is, this is a, a prophetic statement that is given that refers to, uh, initially will refer to David's son, uh, Solomon, who's going to take the throne after. After David, but we also see uh, a prophetic statement when it refers to the person of Jesus. It says, Your house, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. It speaks of a kingdom or a throne that will have no end to it. Um, it speaks of a king who will reign on the throne for all eternity. Now, if you know anything about uh, the history of the kings in Scripture, um, is, is that there were kings who came and reigned for long periods of time, and there were kings who reigned for short periods of time, but each of them had an end to their throne or to their reign, but we will see in the person of Jesus Christ that is not the case. His throne will be or be established forever. Number two, this time that Jesus refers to speaks of the coming of the promised seed who was called to rule and reign. 
think some of us know this text in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, this is a text that we use often, uh, especially around the Advent, the Christmas season. It says, for, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. So when Jesus comes onto the scene in Galilee and he says the time that God has promised, it has now come, he is referring, first of all, to the eternality of the throne. And he also refers to the promise of the coming seed. You can trace, I don't have time to do it this morning, but you could go all the way back to Genesis and you can trace the promise of a seed. Genesis chapter 3 and trace it all the way through Scripture. Remember, Abraham has promised a son and, and, and he, has rep- he has promised a seed. And you can trace that all the way through the Old Testament. And that is obviously, as we know, um, as we read Scripture and we look back, that seed that is promised refers to Jesus Christ the Son of God. And so it refers to the coming of a promised seed. This time was also a critical and opportune moment in history. Now, I don't want to bore you uh, this morning, and I won't take long to do this, with, with the Greek language, and, and I'm not necessarily fluent in Greek, but there's actually two words that, that, that are used for time, at least two words and, 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 and possibly others, but there's two specific words that, that oftentimes are used when we speak of time. One is kairos, the other is chronos. Chronos speaks of chronology, it speaks of this kind of ongoing chronological aspect of time, but kairos speaks more of a specific moment in time. And when, when Jesus comes onto the scene here in Galilee, and when he says, the time promised by God has come, he, he uses the word kairos. He is talking about a specific moment. Remember, he is announcing, he is ushering in the kingdom of God. So this is a very critical, opportune time that is occurring. And then number four, this time, and this is probably my favorite point, this time was very strategic, intentional, and perfect. How many know this morning that God's timing is perfect? Um, I, I've even witnessed that um, just even over the last few weeks, some things that are that are occurring and evolving, I can look back and I can see that God's timing is always perfect. And and, and folks, I, I I love to plan and I love to have my schedule and and I like to work on my timeline. And maybe there's some of you in this room uh, that share that same passion um, and others in this room don't care at all, but that's okay. The reality is my timeline doesn't matter at the end of the day. The only timeline that matters is God's timeline. And so I know and I trust that his timing is always perfect. And I, again, I can point to moments in my life where I felt like, man, why isn't this happening as it should? And then I realized as I look back, wait, this was all in God's timing. His timing is perfect. And I'm certain many of you uh, can point to that as well. And we see in Galatians 4, I love this verse, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, but when the right time came, Kairos, when the right time came, what did God do? He sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. I am certain I am certain that there were Old Testament figures, Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel or any of the Israelites or any of the people wondering, is this the time? 
Is this when the Messiah is coming? They, they were waiting. They were expecting for the Messiah to come. But at just the right time, when the time was right, God sent forth his son. And again, I don't have time to go into all the details, but, but the timing of God coming in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ was, was so ideal, was so perfect. Why? Because there were so many things, not just spiritually, but so many things historically and politically um, that were happening uh, in that first century when Jesus came onto the scene. Uh, you can, if you, if you like to study a history a little bit, uh, you can see that the, the Greek influence allowed for all of the people in that day to share a common language, which was key. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, and when you have Paul and his missionary journeys going, they can go to different places throughout the regions and they can share the hope of Jesus Christ in a language that people will understand. Um, the Roman influence was key and critical. Why? Because the Romans are the ones that actually built the, the transportation, the road system in that day, which allowed Paul, which allowed Silas and Barnabas and anyone traveling in that day to get from point A to point B to take the gospel to places where it had never been before. We also have the Jewish influence. You have these Jews who are expecting and waiting for a deliverer. So at just the right time, God sent forth his son. So when Jesus comes onto the scene in Galilee and he says the time that God has promised has arrived, he is referring into the perfect time, the timing for the kingdom of God to be ushered in. Jesus is announcing to his audience that the wait is over for God's intervention. There were people who were waiting, longing, and expecting for the Messiah to come, and now that time has come. Jesus Christ, the King, the kingdom of God is being ushered in in the person of Jesus Christ. God's timing is perfect. His timing is intentional. And folks, his time is worth trusting because he operates by a completely different clock. And I think if, if as human beings, as Christians, if we could wrestle with that, if we could embrace that reality that God's timing is perfect, that would probably save a lot of us a headache that we encounter when we try to figure out things on our time frame or on our schedule. His timing is perfect. It's intentional, and it's worth trusting. Declaration number two, the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is near. What is the kingdom of God? Let me just give this to you quickly. Um, this is a little bit of a teaching moment this morning, but, but the kingdom of God is thrown around quite often uh, Matthew spends quite a bit of time talking about the kingdom of heaven or even the kingdom of God. There's several parables that you see in the scriptures that refer to the kingdom of God. And so what, what is Jesus speaking about when he says the kingdom of God is near or at hand? First of all, this idea of the kingdom of God, it's rooted in Israel's concept of God as king. Exodus 15, verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. 1 Samuel 12, verse 12, but when you were afraid of Nahash, the king of Ammon, you came to me and said that you wanted a king to reign over you, even though the Lord your God was already your king. We see in Psalm verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, it says, listen to my cry for help, my king and my God, for I pray to no one but you. So this, this idea of the kingdom of God, it is initially rooted in Israel's concept, Israel's understanding of God being their king. And I could point you to several, several scriptures throughout the Old Testament. Number two, it would certainly, this idea of the kingdom of God would certainly resonate at some level with the listeners. 
Because keep in mind, they were waiting for a king to rule over them. They were waiting for a king to come and to set things in order, to eradicate evil and and even the earthly kingdoms that existed and to restore back to Israel its former glory. So anytime they they heard about the kingdom of God or or they heard about God being referred to as king, they could at least grasp at some level this idea of a new kind of kingdom being ushered in that would eradicate from their perspective all evil. In Daniel 7, you can jot this down. It's not up on the screen, but Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. So so that pictures a king and a kingdom. There's sovereignty that's been given over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Isaiah 35 verses 1 and 2 gives us a very similar picture. Again, these are listeners who would understand who would understand this idea of the kingdom of God. Number three, yet their view of the kingdom was limited. The Jewish people definitely had a limited understanding of the kingdom of God. They thought it was just for them. Man, you get to the New Testament and, and, and you start grafting in the Gentile population. There's all kinds of division and, and hatred and anger that occurs because in their mind, from their perspective, they failed to see that the kingdom of God was universal in nature. It was for everybody who would believe. But they had this very limited understanding of the kingdom. We know that the kingdom of God, let me just be honest with you this morning, it is still a mystery. Is there anybody in here that has fully grasped and understood the kingdom of God yet? If you do, let me know afterwards, and I'll let you speak next week, all right? Uh, it, It is a mystery. Scripture is very clear. Mark 4, verse 11, he replied, you are permitted... Um, You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders. We also know that there is this paradox of the kingdom. If God's rule has come, listen to this, if God's rule had come, then then why John's arrest in the first place? Uh, if, If Jesus is ushering in this new kingdom that is coming that's going to eradicate evil and and all of this other stuff, then why John's arrest in the first place? That's the paradox of the kingdom. And let me really just narrow it down. And this is what I want you to grasp. It'll be up on the screen uh, this morning. When we talk about the kingdom of God, there is an already and a not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Can everyone say with me already? Say already. How about not yet? Okay, that's key. That is critical. That is important. When we talk about the kingdom of God, there is an already a present aspect of the kingdom of God, but there's also a not yet aspect of the kingdom. So, so really today where we are at, we kind of live in this, this middle part where there's an already aspect. God says the kingdom of God is, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. But we also know that there is this not yet aspect of the kingdom of God because sin still exists, there's still chaos, there's still confusion. And and so how do we wrestle with this understanding that the kingdom has come? It's because there is an already aspect and there is a not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. There is a present aspect of the kingdom. Jesus announced, he said, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus has come, God's sovereign rule and reign has been ushered in. 
And this is proven when God, we, we see this. If you read through, through the Gospels, you read through the rest of Mark, you see that, that the kingdom of God being near is proven in the fact that God breaks in. And what does he do? And he still does this today. He still heals. He still restores. Jesus still does miracles. Every time that he does a miracle, every time that he heals, every time that he breaks in here on earth, we get a glimpse of the kingdom of God, the present aspect of the kingdom, that it is near, that it is at hand every single time. But, but really, that's one of the reasons why we wrestle with it. And to be honest, I know there are times that maybe you've lost loved ones before, um, and, and we cannot even wrestle with and understand why there is still this not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Yes, God does still. We should pray, and I hope that we do. We should pray for God to break in and heal. We should pray for God to break in and restore and to reconcile. He can, he does, but there is still this not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. Jesus said the kingdom belongs even to the little children. Scripture is clear that we can be God's children now. 1 John verse 3, sorry, 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. For every person in this room that has made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God now. But there is still an aspect of what it means to be a child of God that we have not yet fully realized yet. There is a present aspect. I am God's child. I am his son. I am his daughter. But there is a not yet aspect of the kingdom of God that we are still waiting and longing for. There's a present aspect of the kingdom, but there's also still a future aspect of God's kingdom. Kingdom parables portray a future element of the kingdom of God, and there is hope of future glory for all of God's creation. If you have your Bibles, real quickly, um, and I won't be much longer this morning, if you have your Bibles, um, turn to Romans chapter 8 real quickly. Romans chapter 8, it's not on the screen, but turn to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see this. In order for us to fully grasp the meaning of the kingdom of God, we we have to recognize, we have to embrace that there is a present aspect of God's kingdom. Kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is very clear. It is near. I am here. I've ushered in this kingdom. And we see that through the Gospels when he heals, when he, when he feeds the 5,000, he does miracles, when he reconciles and restores relationships. Every single time that happens, we get a glimpse of the kingdom of God that is near. There's still this aspect of the kingdom that you and I as believers, we are still longing for. Because all of us in this room are still longing for a day when there is no more chaos, no more confusion, no more sin, no more heartache, no more pain. Those are things that we long for. Uh, Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at verse, starting in verse 18. It says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all of creation is waiting eagerly. Look at that. Verse 19, all of creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. 
Paul will say in Ephesians, he talks about the Holy Spirit being a, a, a down payment, a deposit, um, a guarantee of what we will one day experience when we see Christ face to face. And so here in Romans, he says, we as believers, we also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us now as a, as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as, a, as his adopted children, including the new bodies. Can I get an amen? Okay. Some of you are excited about that. Others don't care. All right, but as he promised us, we are given this hope when we were saved. If we, are, if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So, so the reality is, as believers, yes, we are his adopted sons and daughters. And, and there is a moment where we experience that now, but there's still an aspect of that adoption that we are still waiting for when we see him face to face. And I think if we're all honest, all of us in this room, we are groaning, we are waiting, we are expecting and looking for, how many are looking forward to the day that we meet him face to face, the moment where there is no more pain, there is no more decay, there is no more death, but instead we will spend eternity with him. Folks, the kingdom of God, there is a present aspect. God, God is still working. He is still moving. He breaks in. He heals. He restores. Most of us have experienced that, but there's also an aspect of the kingdom that we are still longing for, that we're still hoping for, and the Holy Spirit is just a down payment, a deposit, um, a guarantee of that uh, full adoption when we meet him face to face. Let me move to the last two commands, and I'll give these to you quickly and be done. Command number one so Jesus says, the time that God has promised has come. The kingdom of God is near. So what does Jesus say? He says, repent of your sins. Um, I've talked a lot about repentance over the last couple of weeks. The announcement of God's divine rule and reign being ushered in, it requires an immediate response up, up on our part. The call to repent, it is not a reprimand, but it is a call to switch allegiances. There's a new power. It's a new rule. There's a new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And we must respond to God's initiative. And, and so when he comes, the time that God promised has come, the kingdom of God, it is being ushered in. It is here. It is near. It is at hand. So Jesus says to those that are listening, and he says by nature to us today, we must repent of our sins. We need to change allegiances. And he's talking to, so he's talking to a crowd. If your allegiance was to some earthly kingdom over here. Jesus said, I am ushering in a brand new kingdom, a kingdom that will, be, that will be here for eternity, and you need to repent of your sins or you need to switch allegiances. No longer are you to be um, a slave of this earthly kingdom, but you are to be a slave of this heavenly kingdom that I am ushering in. So when he says repent of your sins, he is calling for these people to change allegiances. Who are they going to serve? Who's going to be their master? Who are they going to submit to? Are they going to submit to an earthly kingdom? or are they going to submit to this kingdom that God is ushering in through the person of Jesus Christ? Repentance. Repentance requires that we take our sin seriously. Um, sometimes I think the problem in our culture today is that we, we really um, water down the concept of sin in the first place. 
Um, it, it, it's no longer rebellion against God. Instead, it's just, well, I messed up a little bit or, or I made a little tiny mistake or a little boo-boo here, no big deal, nothing, nothing too extreme. Maybe it only affected me, didn't affect anyone else. But, but the problem is in our culture today is we have so watered down um, sin that, that, that this idea of repentance, if, if we water down sin, if it's just a little tiny mistake, if it's no big deal, then repentance isn't even necessary anymore. But when we understand and we have this really high view of sin and we recognize that, that my actions, my sin is rebellion against God, the creator of the universe, then repentance becomes incredibly necessary and important. We see this in Scripture. Remember, remember in Exodus, um, Moses is at the top of the mountain and the people down below, they become impatient. Um, I know it's human nature to become impatient. They've been waiting for days and weeks, and Moses is on the top of the mountain. They don't know what's going on. They're not sure if he's still alive, if he's coming back. And, and if you remember, um, Aaron, Moses' brother, he's at the bottom of the, of, of the mountain. He's listening to all the complaints and the, the bickering and the complaining of the people down at the bottom of the mountain. So finally, they go to Aaron, and they say, we can't wait any longer. Uh, can you just, can you build us, build us a calf, build us a God that we can worship here because we're not going to wait on Moses and, and God to speak any longer. And, and, and so uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but what ends up happening is um, they start bringing all their gold or jewelry, their stuff, and, and, and they create a golden calf out of all of the items that they have personally. And when Moses comes down to the mountain and he asks Aaron what's going on, what does Aaron do? He, he begins to pass the blame. Well, these people, they, they just gave me their stuff and we threw it in and poof, out came this big old golden calf. Um, but, but that's um, not, not to downplay what's happening here, but we see that, that Aaron, Aaron is downplaying, he's watering down his rebellion against God. What is, what is he trying to do? He's trying to pass the blame to somebody else. And that's what we often do. Instead of taking responsibility for our own sin, our own rebellion against God, we are quick as human beings. And I'm talking about, I'm not just talking about me. Maybe I am. I don't know. Uh, I think all of us, it's human nature. We want to pass the blame to somebody else. And instead of taking responsibility for our own rebellion, David Garland said this, if we do not admit that we have a problem, then we do not get down on our knees and come to God for the solution. If we do not admit that we have a problem, if we try to water down the sin and just, that's just a little mistake, no big deal, if we don't admit to our sin, then we cannot get down on our knees and come to God for the solution. Repentance won't happen if we have a shallow view of sin. Sin is rebellion against God, and because it is rebellion against God, it requires that we go before him, we get on our knees and we repent, we change our ways. Repentance must not be approached carelessly. Um, some of you may be familiar with um, Huckleberry Finn. Um, I had to read it in school. Maybe some of you did as well. Um, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Uh, there is a story about Huck Finn's alcoholic pappy. It says, the old drunk cried and cried when Judge Thatcher talked to him about temperance and such things said he'd been a fool and was going to turn over a new leaf. And everyone hugged him and cried and said it was the holiest time on record. And that night he got drunker than he had ever been before. We cannot, folks, we cannot. Number one, we have to, we have to take seriously sin. We cannot downplay it. We cannot water it down. 
and we must approach repentance carefully. Repentance is not, oh, I messed up, okay, I'm sorry, God, forgive me, and then you go back doing the same thing over and over again. Folks, it is, it is a change of allegiance. It is, okay, I am turning away from this thing in my life, and now I am pursuing Jesus Christ faithfully, and, and I'm going, and, and thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us because the Holy Spirit's the one that, that helps us when we are tempted. The Holy Spirit's the one um, that, that nudges us when we start to go back this direction. Uh, we have an advocate with a father who can remind us, who gives us the power to have, um, have victory over that sin in our life. Instead of relying on the flesh, we can rely on the Spirit of God inside of us. Mark Schweizer said, repentance does not refer to changing the characteristics or the actions of the person, but the total direction of life. It is a change of allegiance. When we repent, folks, we are, we are no longer going to be uh, serving the kingdoms of this earth, but we are deciding, we are making a decision that I'm going to follow the kingdom of God. And there are so many, and we'll get into this when we get into Mark's gospel, we'll see that the values of the kingdom look a whole lot different than the values of the kingdom of this world. And, and, and if you read Matthew's gospel, read Matthew, the Beatitude, or um, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, if you want to get a glimpse of what the values of the kingdom of God look like, you will begin to see they look totally different than what the values of this earthly kingdom reflect. And finally, command number two. So we said, the time that God has promised is near. Kingdom of God is, or time that God has promised has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins. And then Jesus just simply said, believe the good news. Kingdom of God, his rule and his reign is near. His kingdom offers restoration and transformation power. Therefore, Jesus said to those listening, and he says to us today, believe and receive this good news. And what is the good news going all the way back to Mark chapter 1? The good news is referring to the person of Jesus Christ. He has come. He has ushered in his kingdom. His kingdom is totally different than the kingdoms of this world. He challenges us. He calls us to repent of our sins, to change who is ruling and reigning in our life, and to change back to him, and then to believe this good news. Would you stand with me this morning? Worship team is going to come want to close with this. This is kind of an odd story, um, but it really captures uh, this final point this morning. As a child, not me, but this is another person telling this story. As a child, I lived in an area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. We had more of that than we could use. But in my senior year of high school, the Rural Electrification Administration extended its lines into the area where we lived, and electrical power became available to the households and farms. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and Preserving it could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them, take the practical steps involved in relying on it. The writer said, you may think this 
may think the comparison rather crude, and in some respects it may be, but it will help us to understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of the heavens. If we pause to reflect on those farmers who, in effect, heard the message, repent, for electricity is at hand. Repent or turn from their kerosene lamps and lanterns, their ice boxes and cellars, scrub boards and rug beaters, and their radios with dry cell batteries. The power that could make their lives far better was right there near them, where by making relatively simple arrangements, they could utilize it. Strangely, he said, a few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. Some just didn't want to change. Others could not afford it, or so they thought. Would you bow your heads with me this morning and just close your eyes for just a moment? I know just in one single verse, I may have given you a lot to chew on this morning. But let me just... Let me just try to summarize real briefly and to, to really get it to where we're at today. When Jesus comes into Galilee and he begins his public ministry, he declares that the time that all of the prophets, all of the scriptures were speaking of about this throne that would never end and that this king who would reign forever. All of the prophets, all of the scriptures that they were referring to, Jesus came onto the scene and the very first thing he said to those who knew the prophecies, to those who knew the scriptures, he said to them, that time, the time that God has promised to you, to those of you that are waiting, to those of you that are longing for a king and the Messiah to come, to eradicate evil, to to get rid of sin, that time that God has promised, very first thing Jesus said, that time has come. It has come at just the right time. God sent forth his son. And then he said to that same crowd, he said, the kingdom of God, that is God's sovereign rule and reign, a kingdom that cannot be compared to any other earthly kingdom, whether it was Babylon or Assyria or the Romans or the Greeks, the kingdom of God surpassed every other earthly kingdom kingdom and he said that kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ that kingdom it is near it is at hand it is come and we see evidence of that even today we continue to see God break in and do the miraculous we see evidence of God breaking in and restoring and healing relationships we see God break in and answer prayers that we've been praying for for weeks, for months, and years. It's because the kingdom of God, it is near, it is at hand. There is a present aspect of his kingdom. And for those of you that have made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, at that moment, you were adopted into his family as his son and as his daughter. But there's still an aspect of that kingdom, even as sons and daughters of the creator God, there is still an aspect of that kingdom that our bodies, that our hearts, that our minds, that our souls are still longing for. 
There's an already and a not yet aspect of that kingdom. So when Jesus makes that announcement and he declares that the time has come and the kingdom has, is now at hand, Jesus looks at the crowd and he demands a response from them. He says, number one, repent of your sins. Repent of your sins. That means no longer are you to be mastered by these earthly kingdoms, but change. Change who you are serving. Come and serve and follow me. And then he just simply says, believe, believe the good news. Believe the good news, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with us.